Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mahani Zubedi. There were pornographic tape covers. There was dildos, bongs, bongs that look like dildos. That and more. But before that, I just want to give a little shout out to some of our latest Patreon members, Mike Strauss, Serafina, Susan Lewis, Camille Blakebro Fairbairn, Jeff Grell, Laura Anastasia, Tony Liedel, and Damon Smith. Oh my gosh, we are so deeply thankful to everyone who is supporting us on Patreon right now because we really need it. We're switching into a sort of survival mode, cutting back on a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, just trimming the sails wherever we possibly can. You know, we're very, very confident that we will survive the short term. It's the long term that's the big question. And uh, our Patreon support has become absolutely essential to us. Also, though, there is so much over on our Patreon. There's so many behind-the-scenes check-ins, interviews with storytellers and staff members. There's so many bonus stories over there at this point and ad-free versions of episodes. We chat back and forth with fans over there. So if you love what we do, please, please do help us out over at patreon.com slash risk. Or if instead of the monthly situation that Patreon has, if you want to just give us a one-time donation, you can go to paypal.me slash risk show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Penguin Cafe Orchestra behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Uncommon. Uncommon personalities, talking about uncommon life experiences on this week's episode. I hope everyone is staying strong, doing a lot of self-care, staying as connected as you can to other people. I've become curious about something, and that is I'm wondering how many Risk fans live in my neck of the woods, um, which would be Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, Clinton Hill, 
Uh, I'm even over a little bit in the Crown Heights area sometimes, or the Prospect Park area for that matter. You know where to find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison. And on Facebook, I'm the Kevin Allison that has red hair and a red beard. <laughs> I, I don't know. That probably doesn't narrow it down either. Or you can email me at kevin at risk-show.com. want to see if I can engage in more activism this coming week, because that always makes me feel better. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I am having a really, really hard time with not being able, you know, living alone and not being able to have sex. I've just, uh, n- you know, never gone this long without sex since I was 18 years old and first moved to New York City. I've been super hurt and confused and uh, everything by by people I was in relationship with before all this happened. So, I guess for the time being, focusing on friendships. Friendships and trying to make the world a better place. There's a really cool new thing I'm going to start doing this week. It might be too early for me to be telling you about it, uh, but I'm going to be on this new service called Subtext, where you can receive text messages from me. Like, you can have this direct texting relationship with me. You can reply, and the reply will come just to me, not to everyone else using subtext, even though my texts are going out to a bunch of people. Um, My texts will be all about, oh, how I felt about such and such a story on such and such an episode, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, what the staff is talking about, brainstorming on, uh, storytelling techniques that I myself am rediscovering storytelling brainstorming ideas just everything related to risk storytelling and just the things that i mull over i'll be texting to risk fans and if you sign up for this subtext service you can text me back and then i might engage right back with you have a little personal conversation with you via text So stay tuned for more information on that because I've only just set up the account and I'm not sure that it's all ready to go yet so that I can tell you how to get it. We have a fantastic episode today, a really great one. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Don Jewel Fraser, who, you know, Don has been on the show many times before and she's a teacher for the Story Studio, our storytelling school. Before that, we're going to hear from John McWhorter. John is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. Of his many books, uh, you might have heard of Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English. But before John and Dawn, we're going to hear from Mahani Zubaydi. This story was recorded at that show in Austin, Texas last year when the story about the cannibalism uh, that we ran a few months back was also recorded that night. (laughs) Very memorable night. So here is Mahani now with a story we call 
Jason King. In my 20s, Malcolm and I lived in Malaysia, where I'm from, when he got a job offer in California. He was a petroleum engineer, and Bakersfield was calling. Bakersfield, California, USA. We got married, we got on a plane. A year later, we got pregnant. We wanted a home, and Malcolm wanted to live near a body of water. I researched and found out the only place we could afford was Lake Elsinore, one and a half hours southeast of LA. We went house hunting, and one day we found a dream home. It was way up on a steep hill in the middle of Cleveland National Forest. It was a Buckminster Fuller house, a geodesic dome. It was mostly glass. From the living room, the dining, and the kitchen, it was like a huge panoramic moving painting. On the day we were there, the clouds were about eye level drifting slowly through the sky. Their shadows hugged the undulating bare brown hills on the other side of the lake. Malcolm pulled me aside and said, babe, this is it. This is it. A part of me said, yes, this is the most beautiful home I've ever seen. It is glorious. The forest, the lake, the house. The other side of me. Are you out of your fucking mind? You work on rigs for days on end. You are going to leave your wife and new baby here in the middle of nowhere? I didn't want to be a wimp. So I said, yeah, this is it. When Malcolm was home, it was Shangri-La. We cleared the land below, planted peaches, apples, plums. We built a chicken palace. We had a dozen chickens. Each one we cared for from the time they were tiny little yellow fluffy balls in the garage with heat lamps and we fed them with eye drops. When Malcolm was away, I would run out, feed the chickens, run back in, lock the door. <laughs> back from the supermarket, I'll carry Aisha on one hip, groceries, always looking over my shoulder for coyotes and crazy people. Months pass by like this. And one day, just like that, 
the price of oil dropped. The office closed. Malcolm was told he will get a gig here and there, but no more monthly checks, no more sweet bonuses. I seized the moment. Malcolm, let's sell the house. Let's sell the house and go back to Asia. It's way cheaper and we can ride this out. Malcolm, let's wait and see. I might get a job in Ventura County. I lost it. I hate this house. I am scared shit living here. Please, let's just move out. We put the house for sale. <laughs> Six months passed by. Two people came to see. Neither came back. Interest rates was 13%. We didn't know that was expensive. We thought that was what it cost to buy a house. One more month, and I got a call from a random agent. Yes, the house is for sale. Come and see it. So he came with a man who looked exactly like Jason King, an 80s British TV private detective. <laughs> Big, curly, long hair, fat mustache, gold-rimmed glasses, body-hugging black silk shirt open at the top, Chest hair lurking. <laughs> Gold cross. Jason King walked in the house, walked out of the house, walked around the house, looked at the view and said, I'll put down 20000 I'll make your monthly payments for 12 months, and we'll close on the house at the end of the year. I called Malcolm, 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 somebody wants to buy the house. Jason King, Jason King wants to buy the house. And Malcolm particularly liked that we were going to be able to stay for one more year. The next morning, Jason King signed papers. I signed papers. Jason King opened his briefcase and took out $20,000. He left. The agent and I, on our knees, on the floor, counted all the money. That was 20000 He left. I stuffed the money in a paper bag, went to the bank, deposited it. I wasn't going to be in the house with a baby and $20,000. <laughs> All was terrific. Jason King paid every month, first of the month. Malcolm, Aisha, and I lived in a little trailer home with chickens and geese. It was paradise. Months passed by. One morning, I got a call. The dome house caught fire last night. Come now. We went. From the foothills, we saw that everything was in one piece. As we come up the driveway, our jaws dropped. 20-foot boat, four ATVs, two bright, shiny Sports cars, a Jaguar E and a Mercedes. The door was open. And the smell of burned wood and wall 
hit us. I passed Aisha to Malcolm. I went in first. And sure enough, somebody started a fire right in the middle of the living room. And all around the living room, there was underwear, there was clothes, there were pornographic tape covers, there was dildos, bongs, bongs that look like dildos. <laughs> and right there on the floor, a clear plastic bag of pot. Right there. The policeman invited me to go and check the bedrooms and the kitchens. I stood there and I go, this is not my home. What the hell were these people doing here? No, I'm not going to check anything. I started leaving the house. Policemen invited us to go to the garage. Someone wanted the police to come to the house. Someone wanted the police to know that Jason King was making crack cocaine in the garage. Malcolm went in, I did not. From 10 feet away, I could smell the plastic and metal right at the back of my throat and it made me want to puke. Malcolm came out of the garage and said, son of a bitch made holes on my wooden shelves. <laughs> yeah, his designer wooden shelves. <laughs> Police asked us questions. We had no idea where Jason King was, who he was, what he was. We were numb and shocked. What the hell do we do now? We owe a shitload of money, this house. We had spent the $20,000. Is insurance going to cover the damage? Should we just run away? Malcolm says, no, no, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. We've got a lot in here. It'll be all right. About a week later, we were told the house was ours. We could keep the 20000 The repairs were going to be covered by the insurance. That for days, it seemed, all we did was go around saying, thank you so much for helping us repair the house. Thank you so much. And the news, there was news on the fire. A couple came up and offered to buy the house. We were so blessed. I learned when a stranger hands you a shitload of cash, <laughs> ask questions. I learn, when you are scared, tell the one you love. Tell the one you love how you feel. I'd like to think I learned to plan my life better. You know, one-year plan, three-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan. I still stumble through life. I'm 63. These days is a slow mo Tumble, and I'm, I might catch myself sometimes before I fall. Other times, I fall flat on my face, and it's okay. On with the next adventure. In August 11, 
2018, the holy fire started by an arsonist burned through Cleveland National Forest in Lake Elsinore. 19,100 acres. There were 14 homes in that forest. The dome house was one of them. Today, nothing is left. It's bare, barren, and burnt. In my mind, I can see the arc of the dome and the view pass that. Thank you. My mother was a very passionate person in many ways. She had a rather oblique way of teaching lessons. And often the lessons were very valuable ones that I'll bet an awful lot of kids did not get from their mothers. One memorable piece of advice that my mother gave me and that I don't think you would get that way from most parents, it was really invaluable and very sensitive, was when I was on my way to college. And of course, when you go to college, you want to bring the things that are dear to you. And back then, most of what was dear to you wasn't in your phone. It was about actual physical possessions. And because I was quite the hopeless geek, one of the things that I liked was my near complete collection of cheap, crappy little Charlie Brown paperbacks. I had almost all of those. And you know, back then you couldn't just go on Amazon and get them all. It was a matter of going to flea markets and they're about 60 and I had like 54 and I had read them and I wanted to bring those with me to college. So I had them in this carton and my mother saw all the things that I was bringing and she said, you know, John, I don't think you should bring those Charlie Brown books. And I said, why? And she said, well, you know, because if you show up with those books and that's the way people meet you, then a lot of people are going to think you're weird and they're going to be finished with you right there. I remember she used the term finished with. They'll be finished with you. They will never be open to you again. Whereas what you should do is spend the semester at college looking as normal as you can. And after you've made some friends and people get used to the way you are, then after Christmas, if you bring those books and put them up on the shelf, People already like you. They will already have an affection for your eccentricities. And it'll be okay because you'll have already made your way into people's hearts. Don't start out weird. That was absolutely correct. I think a lot of moms and dads would have said, well, that's just the way Justin is. And yeah, those books would have you know, sat up on my shelf and people would have thought, no, not him. Whereas by you know January or February, I did bring those books. And by then, people knew that my weirdness was not going to hurt them. Mom was absolutely right. You string out your weirdness gradually, and then you can have all the fun you want. She was good with oblique lessons like that. But then at times, she would teach a lesson that was equally valuable, but in ways that you certainly weren't going to get from any other parent, and which really are worth narration. They, they stick out in my memory. For example, I want you to picture a suburban scene 
it might as well have been on the set of Leave It to Beaver, except in color. It's a hot summer day in 1977, and my mother and I had been to the supermarket, and it was 12:29. Now. At 12.30 in those days, they were showing I Love Lucy on TV. I was 12, and I was fascinated by this I Love Lucy show. The whole nostalgia craze had started in the 70s, and so there were these books about this black and white show with this family, and I hadn't seen it, and I Love Lucy wasn't run very frequently in Philadelphia in the 70s for some reason, but it was going to run at 12.30 that day, and I wanted to see this weird black and white show with, you know, this woman blacking out her teeth and her husband doesn't know who she is. It just, it fascinated me from a distance. What's interesting is that I look back and I realize back then the show was only 20 or 25 years old. It was only as old as some show from the 90s is now. But to me, because partly the black and white was so different from color, I Love Lucy to me seemed like, you know, a silent film. So I wanted to see this. And of course, remember, in 1977, there's no home video. There's no such thing as a VCR yet or only, you know, two very rich kids had them. So you had to get in and see it while it was on. So 1229 and I wanted to see it from the credits because I'm a completist. Mom has some shopping bags and she's walking through the door and I squeezed by her and maybe you could call it pushed by her because I wanted to get into the den and see this show from the beginning. So I turn it on and the hearts come up. Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz. To this day, I always think of this whenever I see the opening credits to this show. And as soon as the opening credits are over and Lucy and Desi start having a conversation, my mother comes sweeping in furious and she turns off the TV and she I was still standing and she pushed me back into this big flower chair and she said now you listen to me and I said what and she said you know what's going to happen to you if you don't learn to be more patient and I said what and she said you're going to have premature ejaculations as a man I had never heard the term in my life I was 12 years old it wasn't something I was thinking about but she meant it and you remember, there's no laugh track. My life was not a TV show. You're going to have premature ejaculations as a man. And I said, Mom, what's that? And she said, you're going to be having sex with your wife, and you're going to orgasm too fast, and you're not going to be able to satisfy her. And I said, is that really something that happens? And she said, yes. And people divorce over that, you know. So just think about it. And then she swept out. Contrast that with whatever was going to happen on I Love Lucy, and I can almost feel I can't turn the show back on. And knowing my mother, I knew that a shoe hadn't dropped. So I kind of sat there and waited while I was thinking about this unsatisfactory intercourse of the type that I had never heard. And she came back and she said, and you know what else? And I said, what? And she said, your orgasms will be weak. And then she swept out of the room again. Well, think of that detail, which, you know, I, I, of course, have had no experience with this, but I would imagine that that must be true. And why, why that? And of course, you find yourself thinking, what was the state of my parents' marriage? And the truth is, it did not last, but that was not the issue. It was 
more substantial things than that. But why would somebody come in? And I think that mom was one angry that I pushed by her, but then why would she think of all of that? She really wanted me to learn to be more patient. And the truth is, I imagine that a certain kind of impatient person might be more given to having that particular problem. And that's what came to her mind. And that's what she said to her 12 year old son. And so as weird as that seems, my mother was not crazy. She was just passionate and honest and a little bit boho. And that did teach me about patience to this day. Whenever I am stuck in traffic or I'm waiting for somebody to do something, I think to myself, not necessarily about premature ejaculation, but I think that this sort of thing probably does get inside of you. It probably does eat away at your functioning in various ways. And I wouldn't be thinking of that as vividly as I do if it weren't for I Love Lucy being interrupted by a conversation about sexual dysfunction one hot day in 1977 when I was but a lad. Welcome to the virtual stage, Don Jewel Fraser. Hello, hello. I feel like I'm walking onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, it is uh, the winter of 2011 in New York City, and there's not a lot really going on in, in Dawnland. I'm single. I'm broke because I've been unemployed for about a year and I just keep on hanging out at Starbucks because, you know, I'm trying to find me a sugar daddy to buy me a chai latte. Um, and so I'm really not really feeling this time. The only thing that really is going on for me right now is the fact that I'm doing a lot of volunteer work with storytelling organizations doing this kind of stuff. And people are telling me that I'm really good at it. So I shift courses and I say, all right, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm starting my own business from here on out. My business is Fraser's Edge, LLC. And I'm going to be working with different people on communications and speeches, and I'm going to have a good time with it. Um, but I need clients. So I'm talking to everybody. I'm going to conferences. I'm going to events. If you had a dog, I'd tell your dog that I was a speech coach. It didn't matter. Like, everybody I knew, I am a speech coach. And surprisingly, this process works. I got a call, um, once again, at a Starbucks, and it's from an undisclosed number. Now, typically, I'm not going to pick up an undisclosed number, but I'm not doing anything. So I figured, like, hey, why not? And uh, a woman on the other line says, hi, my name is Kristen. Is this Dawn? I said, yeah, this is her. She says, I got your name from an agent who I think you met a couple of weeks ago, and they tell me that you're a speech coach. And I said, oh, yes, I am. How can I help you? And she starts to explain that she is the assistant to a gentleman um, by the name of Common. And then all of a sudden, my brain goes blank because she starts explaining how he, he does stuff on greatness and speeches about excellency. And I, I stop her after a little while and I say, wait, 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 excuse me. Are you talking about Common, like Common Common, the rapper Common? And she says, oh, yeah, you know him? And I was like, no, I don't know Common, but I know of him, of course. I grew up on his music, like, of, of course, yes, absolutely. And she says, oh, excellent, that's great. Yeah, that, that, that's who I represent. That's who, you know, I'd like to, like, get some, like, you know, no new content with. And my heart just starts to race. Common, the love of my life, he, he, he needs a speech coach. I, I, I'm flabbergasted as she keeps on talking. And then she looks at the calendar and she says, you know, 
actually, he's coming to New York City um, in about a week to do a speaking engagement at Kane University in Jersey. So if you're free, and I'm like, yes, yes, I'm free, I'm free. <laughs> you know, let's do this. And she's like, okay, great. I'll set a time and date. I'll give him your digits and, um, you know, we'll make this happen. And so I say, okay, very confidently. But inside I'm thinking like, oh my God, what am I going to say to this man? I can't believe that this might actually be my first speech client. So the day rolls, comes up and he, he sure enough rolls up in this big black SUV and I see him from my window, I'm looking down. And so I go down the stairs and uh, I greet him. And he is just as beautiful and magnificent in person as I have ever imagined. His beautiful, I don't know if you all know what Common looks like, but he just has these beautiful brown eyes, a perfect face, perfect face. I mean, a smile made of gold, like lips made of sex. Like it, he's just like the epitome of beauty. And he gives me a hug and he's like, you ready to go? And I said, yeah, let's do this. So we jump in his SUV and I meet his assistant, Kristen, and we're just chatting, telling stories about who we are, our lives, my background, his background, just having a good time. And we eventually roll up to Kane University. We get there and the car is surrounded by a couple of administrators from the school, a bunch of students who helped to put together this event. And right away, people are just like wanting to shake his hand, take selfies. There's all this excitement, all this buzz. And it's kind of clear who his assistant is because she looks like Miss LA. Like she looks like she's on top of it. But then people are looking at me, just kind of figuring out who I am, which is nobody. I'm just kind of here. But we end up going into the green room and there's a student that eventually comes up to me and you can tell that she's a little bit nervous. I think she wants to take a picture with him or something. So she comes over to me and she asks, excuse me, are, are you calling some mom? <laughs> and I was like, Am I comments what? Am I his mom? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. And she, you could tell she's getting flustered and I'm getting mad. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm comments nobody. Like I'm literally like nobody to this man. And she's like, you know, she's flustered. I'm like, can I help you? She's like, yeah, can you just help us take a picture? I'm like, yeah, sure, chick, whatever, whatever, fine. So I pull out her phone. I, you know, snap a picture with her and her in common. And then shortly afterwards, everyone needs to get ushered into the audience to kind of get the show started. So I take out my phone, I put it on the podium. And before everyone was ushered out, he had all these students kind of fill him in on like, what were the hot spots on campus? So, you know, they're yelling out things like, oh, we hang out at the quad. That's where the that's where the hood of the campus is. And like, you know, we go to Chick-fil-A and uh, we're the cougars. Yeah, cougars. They're just like throwing out all these words. And to my amazement, when he walks out to the stage, he starts off with a freestyle. And it's like just it's amazing. It's like, you know, yo, yo, this is common. He starts talking about the cougars and the den, like, you know, people are throwing out, like, they're throwing up their hands, they're going crazy. And by the end of this freestyle flow, the audience is on their feet. The man has not even started his speech, and they are on his feet. 
and it hits me. I, I can't do this. <laughs> I have to come clean with this man. I mean, I, I would love to work with him, but honestly, the people I've been working with are mostly high school students. I mean, they come at like seven o'clock in the morning, half the time they're drunk, the other half of the time they're high. You know, we give them a standing ovation for showing up. Okay, like <laughs> I'm not at the caliber of working with a world class lyricist. So I, I, I need to just tell him that I can't do this. I, I can't be a speech coach. I'm really appreciative of the opportunity. But and then it hits me that, wait, maybe maybe there's another reason why I'm here. Like, clearly, the universe has sent this man my way. I know about him. I love his work. I have an idea. I am not going to be Common's speech coach. I am going to be Common's girlfriend. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this, this is my new plan. So I'm like, all right, got it. I know what I got, exactly what I got to do. So he gets off the stage, another huge standing ovation. It's amazing. It's great. Everybody wants to take pictures afterwards, but we're all kind of hungry and it's pretty late. So he turns to me and he says, so you want to, you know, get some food and we can like talk about life and everything else? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So we jumped back in the SUV with Kristen and his driver and we're driving up the West Side Highway in New York City. We cut across town to Harlem and we go to this amazing soul food restaurant called Red Rooster. Typically, every time I've been to Red Rooster, you got to wait in line for the sucker. I mean... It's, it's, it's a line, but amazingly, we just get ushered right in, right in. We get a seat, and next thing you know, my favorite drink is my hand, a dark and starmy. And the next thing you know, there's this food. Like, we haven't ordered anything, but apparently celebrities don't really pay for food. Didn't know this. There's different, there's mac and cheese, there's collard greens, there's chicken wings, there's just all kinds of soul food just showing up next to me. It is amazing. I take my next drink. We're having a good time. And then finally, he, he turns to me and he's like, Don, you know, uh, I've been telling you a lot of my stories, a lot, a lot about my background. You heard my speech. But what about you? Like, you know, who did, who did you listen to growing up? And I look at these beautiful brown eyes of his and I'm like, who did I listen to? I listen to you. I listen to you, dude. Like, do you understand? Like, you are my heart and my soul. And you can tell that he's turning like a little bit red, a little blushing. And I realize I'm flirting. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is working. This is working for me, you know. Um, and I explained, I, well, I listen to you, and I listen to like Erica Badu, and I listen to Most Def, and all these other Tupac, all these other hip hop artists that are on his same caliber. And he's like that's what's up. That's what's up. And I'm like, yes, that is what's up. <laughs> we are here. We are here, Common. We're connecting. And I feel it. I'm, I'm starting to envision the little Commonitos and Commonitos that we're going to have when we finally get married. You know, it's just, it's just beautiful. Like everything is coming together. And so we have one more drink and finish up our food. And now it's really getting late. And, you know, we just have to head on home. But I still haven't figured out how I'm going to tell him that I can't be his speech coach, but that I can be his girlfriend. <laughs> so I just keep on 
just thinking about this as, as we're driving home, as we're meandering the streets back down the West Side Highway, we first drop off Kristen at a hotel in Soho. And now we're cutting across downtown. It's a beautiful, beautiful night. It's February, so it's cold, but I feel so warm. I feel, oh, yes, love of my life. This is it. This is my first date with my destiny. We start driving over the Brooklyn Bridge, and I'm feeling warm. I'm feeling fuzzy. I want to let him know that maybe maybe this isn't right right now for me to be working with you. I want to say this, but my my throat is just feeling like dry, and I, I don't know what's going on because I'm feeling a little bit hot. And, and so even though it's freezing outside, I, I decide that I'm just going to, I just need a little bit of fresh air. So I roll down the window and I feel this, this lump in my throat. And all of a sudden, it occurs to me that this is happening. I am suddenly projectile vomiting outside of his car. It is streaking. It is going all the way down the side. And I want to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I can't. I can't stop throwing up. And he looks back at me like, are you? And I just say, oh, my God. I, and, I, and I can't. I just keep throwing up and throwing up. And we can't pull over because we're on the Brooklyn Bridge. There's nowhere to pull over. I just have to keep on doing this. And this is like horrible. I'm like, oh, my God. I cannot believe that this is happening. I'm absolutely mortified. I'm not going to be Common's speech coach. I'm not going to be Common's girlfriend. I'm worse than nobody. I'm going to be Common's chick who threw up all over his car. That's who I'm going to be in his, in his life. And it's not long before we roll up to my apartment in Brooklyn. And I know, I know I've messed this all up. I'm never going to see this man again. But I need some type of proof that I have met him. So we jump outside of the car and I ask him, you know, is it okay if we take a selfie? Is that, is that cool? <laughs> I mean, I need, I need proof that I've actually met this man. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so we go to the non-vomit side of the SUV. <laughs> and, it, and we take a picture. And I head back up into my apartment, absolutely mortified. I messed this up so badly. I don't know if it was my nerves. I don't know if it was the alcohol. I don't know what happened to me, but I just, I've messed it up. But I go inside my apartment and I sleep it off. And the next day I have to say something. I, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I have to, I, I have to say something. So I decide to send him a text and I say, Rashid, my love. Um, it was so great breaking bread with you at Red Rooster. It was so, so good. And I put in air quotes, I'm so sorry about the mess. Um, but if you're still looking for a speech coach, I, I'd be more than happy to work with you. And reluctantly, I just kind of sent send, <laughs> not knowing if he was going to reply, not knowing if I'd ever hear back. And to my amazement, about 10 minutes later, he did reply. And it says, peace, Don. It was great breaking bread with you too. 
Uh, I had a wonderful time just hanging out, telling stories. And, you know, why not? Let's do this. After all, the people are listening. And my eyes widened as I was looking at this text message. I was like, is this serious? This man, this, this, I, I threw up all over his car. I hit on him when I should be actually asking him to be my client. Like this man, I, I couldn't believe it. I almost had tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe that this man that everybody knows as common was absolutely anything but. Thank you. <laughs> One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure. To the heavens, no man, no weapon Formed against, yes, glory is destined Everyday women and men become legends Sins that go against our skin become blessings The movement is a rhythm to us Freedom is like religion to us Justice is juxtaposition in us Justice for all just ain't specific enough One son died, the spirit is revisiting us True and living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up When it go down, we woman and man up They say stay down and we stand up Shots, we on the ground, the camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up this is Risk. This is Common and John Legend behind me now. And we just heard from Don Jewel Fraser. Now, folks, if you have something you'd like to advertise to the Risk audience, now is a great time to do it. Because of the economic depression we're in, we've got more open ad inventory than usual. And we'd be happy to fill it with paid ads from risk fans like you. Maybe you have a product or a creative project or business or a podcast you'd like us to promote. Or maybe you even have a birthday shout out or a message about how much you love someone in your life that you'd like me to read on the podcast or a great cause you'd like to draw people's attention to. As long as you have some kind of budget and it's something I'm comfortable endorsing and that goes for pretty much anything that's ethical i'd love to talk to you about booking an ad or an announcement on risk just email me at kevin at risk show.com and we'll work it out you can provide me with the script of exactly what you want me to say you can let me know what dates you want your ad or announcement to run getting an ad on risk is an awesome way to get the word out about anything you want people to know about so, again, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. 
Also, don't forget, we have another live stream coming up on July 11th, an amazing show on July 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific, with true stories from myself, Drew Prohaska, Tracy Segarra, Ellen Aquario, and Aaron Barker. That's an incredible lineup. We're doing things a little differently for this show. We're doing paid tickets only for this show, which are $15 each, and we're limiting it to 100 tickets only to encourage people to buy tickets ahead of time. So you can get yours at riskdeshow.com slash tour while supplies last. We're also allowing anyone who gives us $25 or more per month on patreon.com slash risk to access this show for free. And if you're experiencing financial difficulty and you really need a free ticket, email me at kevin at riskdashshow.com and we'll get you in on the day of the show. This show is going to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to see you there. Get your tickets at riskdashshow.com slash tour before they're gone. Links to get tickets or support us on Patreon are in the show notes on your podcast player. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Folks, we have one more story. On the episode today, this one comes to us from the super talented Catherine Wu, who you can find on Twitter at Catherine J. Wu, that's W-U. Catherine is one of the producers of The Story Collider, one of our favorite storytelling shows other than ourselves. And she told this one at one of our live streams. So, you know, about 200 people were there watching Catherine tell it live. But we experimented with this one. You'll notice we uh, cut out any audience reactions and just have her telling it right to you. So without further ado, here is Catherine Wu with a story we call Two Lies. We'll cry,
So I'm eight years old and I'm pretty sure I'm having what's the worst summer of my life so far. Uh, for the second year in a row, my parents have sent me to this day camp that's about an hour outside of Los Angeles where I grew up. And that means pretty much every day my parents wake me up at the ass crack of dawn, load me onto this bus that takes us to this dirt field where there are arts and crafts stations everywhere. This is the summer where I have learned that despite my deep, long-held love for horses, I am deathly allergic to horses. <laughs> uh, this is also the point in my childhood where social hierarchies have become a thing because I found out that there are outcasts and I am apparently one of them. Uh, this is never really more apparent than at lunchtime when all the kids just gather around the picnic tables and unwrap their identical peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I always find myself sitting with this group of girls that all look the same. They have the same blonde braids, the same sandwiches, the same juice boxes. I'm the only Asian kid, and I just sit there quietly while all these girls gather around and discuss all the things going on in their lives. You know, their little brothers are so annoying, and oh, they're so excited to watch this show on Nickelodeon when they get home, and their parents are going to take them on this cool trip to Six Flags at the end of the summer. I just never have anything to say, uh, partly because I'm an only child whose parents don't let her watch TV or take her to theme parks. Really, the only thing I have going on in my life is books, which is, is great for me. You know, I love books. Basically, everything I do when I go home is get under the covers in my bedroom and dig into a fantasy book, you know, something where I can just really lose myself in another world. And if I really do it effectively, I can kind of delude myself into thinking I'm reading the next chapter in my own life and that letter to Hogwarts is coming or, you know, my parents are actually secretly a king and queen in some magical kingdom that's going to come sweep me away at some point. That's all well and good for me, but that's not really anything I can say to the girls in this circle because, I mean, they're clearly going to realize that I'm a fake. And that keeps me quiet for weeks. But eventually, one day, I, I just get so fed up with being this invisible participant in this circle, and I decide it's really time for me to speak up and say something, anything, just say something. And so I, I, I open my mouth, and I say the first thing that comes to mind. And before I know it, the words are pouring out of my mouth, and I am telling the girls in this circle that, man, I am lucky to be at camp today, because sometimes... I don't get to see the outside of my bedroom for a really long time because my dad, sometimes when he's mad at me, he'll lock me in the closet in my bedroom for hours and not let me out. And everyone goes quiet. It's kind of creepy. It's like the first time I've ever seen it go all quiet on the picnic table front. And my whole body just starts buzzing. I'm suddenly the center of attention and I feel like I'm in control. And I mean, I gotta admit, it feels really good. There's just one problem with all of this, which is the thing that I've just said about my dad and my bedroom closet is a complete and total lie. My dad has never locked me in my closet. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's not even a lock on my closet door. But I, I don't tell these girls that. I also don't tell these girls the truth about what my dad has done. 
I don't tell them that, well, my dad isn't the type of person who would lock his kid in the closet. He is the type of person who would spit in my mom's face or try to close a car door on my leg or beat the family dog until she is screaming on the living room floor or hold my pet rabbit over the stove and threaten to boil her and make me eat her if I don't behave better. I also don't tell these girls about the night just a few weeks ago when I woke up and found my pillow and my bed sheets covered in blood because I apparently started having a nosebleed while I was sleeping and slept through the first six or seven minutes of it. My screams woke up my mom and, and she came rushing into the room not to comfort me or wipe the blood off my face or tell me that everything was going to be okay, but just to whisper to me in this harsh, small voice, shut up, you need to shut up, you're going to wake him up. And how there was really no point to any of that because seconds later my dad stormed into the room and dragged me out of my bed and into the hallway saying that if I was going to bleed like an animal, I was going to have to live outside like an animal. And I don't tell them how the next morning after I cried myself to sleep, my mom woke me up and made me breakfast and put me on the bus back to camp like everything was normal and it had just been some shitty dream. I don't tell these girls any of that stuff. I think for some reason it's easier to lie and tell them about something my dad has never actually been guilty of. But in any case, the lie has, has worked, you know? I, they're all looking at me. I'm the center of attention. And, and for the rest of the day, I am riding this super weird high. No one really is talking to me, but they're not talking to each other either. And I am first in line for the cookies that afternoon. I'm first in line to pick out my yarn from the crafts table. And by the time I'm riding the bus home, I'm just kind of sitting on this cloud and that night I fall asleep thinking I've really done something you know <laughs> the next thing I remember I am being shaken awake by my mom and it's dark outside and I'm groggy I'm still half asleep so I, I hear her voice before I really see her but I hear her whispering to me and she's repeating something over and over and over and it's what have you done what have you done? <laughs> and she pieces together for me what has happened in the hours since I've come home from camp. It turns out that after I told those girls at lunch about my dad in the closet, one of the girls repeated what I said to a counselor. And that counselor being, you know, a responsible human being called the police. And there are now two police officers standing outside my bedroom door waiting to talk to me. And uh, it hits me like a ton of bricks. And I, I get that uh, the thing that I have said has consequences, which somehow I just had not even thought of before. And my mom sits me up in bed and she puts both of her hands on my shoulders and she looks me in the eye and she's using this voice I've never heard her use before. And she says to me, they're going to take him away. They're going to take your father away. You have to tell them that you lied. You have to tell them that he would never hurt you. Please, you have to tell them that. And something about that does not click in my brain because I, I get that, you know, what I said earlier about the closet, that 
that was a lie, and that was bad. I'm not supposed to lie. But what my mom is asking me to say, that's a lie, too. But I don't really have time to think about it because there's this knock on my bedroom door and the door is opening and these two strangers, a man and a woman, they're walking in and they're telling my mom that she has to leave. And now that these two people can hear her, my mom can't really talk to me anymore, but I watch her kind of back out of the room and her her lips are still moving. She's mouthing at me, please, please. And I, I know what she's asking me to do. They, they shut the door behind her, and now there's this wall between me and my mom. And I'm looking at these two people, this man and this woman, the two police officers that my mom was talking about standing in my room. They're both older. They're both very tired-looking, two very vanilla-looking white people. And I'm, I'm still sitting in my bed, and I'm wrapped up in my blankets, but I feel just vulnerable and totally stripped down naked because I don't think I've ever been alone in my bedroom with two strangers. They're, they're nice. I mean, they're, they're starting to talk to me, these two police officers, um, and I'm pretty sure they tell me their names. I forget them instantly. Uh, and, and they're asking me questions now. They're, they're asking me my name and how old I am and what grade I'm going into. And I, I think I, I must be answering their questions because they keep coming at me. But Pretty much everything in my head at this point is just a mess because I'm already thinking ahead to the question that I know they're going to ask me about my parents and I'm not, I'm not ready for it because I don't know what I'm going to say when they ask me about my dad. I could tell them what I said to those girls this morning, which was, again, a, a lie. I'm not supposed to do that. And then I think about what would happen if I, if I told them the truth, which I've never said out loud before about what my dad has actually done in this house. But, but something about that feels really weirdly appealing. There's like this, this weird sliver of hope that goes through my head because there's part of me that's thinking, I don't know, if, if I tell the truth, that'll be like me passing some sort of test. If I tell the truth, that'll be me opening up this chapter in, in the fantasy book that I've been writing in my head, that'll be my ticket to getting a castle or a magic wand or a letter to Hogwarts. And if I tell the truth, you know, something on the other side of my bedroom door will be like someone saying, congratulations, you passed, your kingdom is waiting, welcome to your real life. But I can't silence this other voice in my head, and it's, it's not my voice, it's my mom's voice, just kind of repeating everything that she was saying earlier about those magic words that she wants me to say to make all of this stop and go away. And I think about what she's asking me to do, and and I think about all the times that my dad has threatened us or hurt us or made us feel unsafe and how her response is always just to to brush it off and, and pretend like nothing has actually happened. I think, you know, the timer in my head has kind of run out because what I'm hearing now is these two cops starting to ask me about my parents and if what I said earlier that day was actually true and I I actually see their eyes going to the door of my closet in my room. And it sort of hits me how, how pointless this fantasy I've been building in my head was and 
how pointless the, the fantasy in my mom's head was because I get for the first time that if I tell the truth, if I tell them what's actually been going on, it's not going to be like winning some kind of lottery. I don't gain anything out of this. I, at least nothing that I can see. The only thing I can see is me losing. Losing my parents and everything about the life that I've known. And I, I don't know how to deal with that reality. That's not something I can even consider because something about that ambiguity, that unknowable universe in which I tell the truth and have to deal with the consequences, that is somehow scarier than anything I've ever been able to imagine. And so I, I look up at the two police officers standing in front of me and for the second time that day, I lie. I look up at them and I say, I'm okay, I'm safe. My parents would never hurt me. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Beulah Bell behind me now. And we just heard from Catherine Wu, who you can find on Twitter at Catherine J. Wu. Don't forget, we're doing another live stream. Catherine's story that you just heard was shared at one of our live streams, as was Don Jewel Fraser's story from earlier in the episode, our next live stream is July 11th, Saturday, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Drew Perhaska, Tracy Segarra, Ellen Aquario, and Aaron Barker will be there. Now, we're doing paid tickets only for this one, so it's $15 each, and we're limiting it to 100 tickets only to encourage people to buy tickets ahead of time. You can get yours now at risk-show.com tour while tickets last, we're also allowing anyone who gives us $25 a month or more on patreon.com risk to access the show for free. And if you're experiencing financial difficulty and you really need a free ticket, you can just email me at kevin at risk-show.com and we can get you in on the day of the show. Show's going to be a lot of fun. 
Get your tickets now at risk-show.com slash tour before they're gone. And links to get tickets or support us on Patreon are in the show notes on your podcast player. Don't forget to look me up on Cameo at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. I love making these little videos for Risk fans and fans of the state. People get them for someone else or for themselves. You can tell me what you want me to do, uh, sing a song or tell a story or uh, just wish a sincere birthday greeting or whatever it might be. <laughs> I have been having so much fun doing them. Just look me up at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. And if you'd like some more substantial bit of my time, go to kevinallison.com because I do storytelling training with people via online consultations. All kinds of artistic mentoring, helping people with their memoirs or their solo shows or their wedding toasts or their speeches or whatever it might be there, you know, a business presentation. You can find me at kevinallison.com. I've also met with a few people about mentoring around sexuality, issues around sexuality. That's been really fascinating. So kevinallison.com for that. Now, don't forget, we have an entire school at thestorystudio.org. There are all kinds of opportunities to jump in on these online classes where you and a bunch of other students are bringing stories kind of like these stories that are shared on risk. You get a lot of feedback from the other students in the class and you get to work with the people who work with risk storytellers behind the scenes as our faculty members. So find us at thestorystudio.org and don't forget we do corporate workshops there too. Oh my gosh, we've done incredible corporate workshops for so many clients like Google and Pfizer and American Express and Citibank. Wonderful opportunities to build morale, help your team connect, get on the same page about how you're sharing about whatever project or initiative you're working on. That is all at thestorystudio.org. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Risk Show. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group is on Facebook. And our subreddit is Risk Podcast. So come on out and talk with us. And don't forget, you can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Okay, I think that covers it. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This dream is for you. So pay the price. Make one drink come true. You only live twice.
that is so funny that Charlie Brown advice because there are <laughs> so true. many key events in my high school and college years where I, I myself was super super careful about when to let out the weirdness but you never had it. any parental guidance around that <laughs> <laughs> you were more socially graceful than me then yeah I only learned that and then, yeah, she was just right. And, you know, it's funny. There were some kids with weird things like that at college. And they were instantly thought of as oddballs. You know, my mother was exactly was exactly right on that. Oh, absolutely. In college, I remember thinking of it as coming out of the closet, how weird to be when. And it was joining yep. my comedy group in sophomore year where I was like, okay, now I can be as weird as I want in college. <laughs> There's that closet analogy. It was like that. Exactly. Yeah.